Hey there, Matt here. Before we get started, just want to let you know that we will be sprinkling some book knowledge into our podcast. Don't worry, they will not spoil any aspect of the story. They're just more supplementary. However, if you're a person who absolutely hates book reader knowledge in your TV talk, then this podcast probably isn't for you. Also, we're sorry. Anyway, here's the podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series. Clearly, you all didn't listen to my two ARIA podcasts. And the HBO Game of Thrones franchises. Yeah. Hey, hey, Matt, we listened. We just didn't agree. <laughs> You're listening to Before the Dragon. Don't tell me what to do. Do, 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 do. We've had very few punishments. Susan and I are the only two people in this entire room right now that have had to get punished. And mine wasn't even because of the game. It was because of my over-under bet. <laughs> so here are our options to give bet a better potential of payoff for our YouTube viewers or our podcast listeners. Maybe we need to select more than one name. I had suggested two. John has suggested three. <laughs> what do you say... Stephanie, do you say two or three? Because we're going to draw more names. That, that's not up for debate. But like, should it be two or should it be three names each round? I think two. Okay. John, your vote is three, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. So we've got one for two, one for three. Kelly? Uh, just to make it extra complicated, what if we, every time you get a week where you didn't have to do anything, you add another one? No, so that's so you... too complicated. How about two or three? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for considering my opinion so thoroughly before telling me that my I'm giving you a vote. Yeah, two. All right, so we've got two for two and one for three. Susan. Two. Oh, oh, damn. I was gonna vote three. <laughs> We're voted out. And so uh John, it's gonna be two. Happy name day. Happy name day. to lots of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon actors in the month of September. This is how we start. Happy name day to both Carice Van Houten, who of course played Melisandre in Game of Thrones, and Patty Considine, who plays King Viserys in House of the Dragon, both born on September 5th. I'm not going to give the years because I don't want you to know how old they are. Go look that up for yourself. Happy name day to Dean Charles Chapman, our favorite Tommen, who uh, was born on September 7th. I'm also not going to tell you how young he was. Happy name day to Alfie Allen, who played, of course, Theon, born on September 12th. So was Michael Meckelhatton, who played Roose Bolton, born also on September 12th. John Bradley, born on September 15th. His birthday is just a day right before mine. Uh, he, of course, played Samuel on Game of Thrones. Fia Sabin, who will be playing Helena Targaryen in House of the Dragon, born September 19th. Indira Varma, who played Alaria Sand. Of course, that was Oberyn Martell's consort in Game of Thrones, September 27th. And finally, Ian McShane, who played Brother Ray in one episode and managed to spoil the whole world by telling us that the Hound was going to reappear 
nonetheless, he says bleep you the way he often does in many other shows that he does. And uh, September 29th is his birthday. He's old. Happy name day. <laughs> and those are the birthdays for September. We're talking about season one, episode three of House of the Dragon, entitled Second of His Name, of course, referring to the newest member of the Targaryen family, Aegon Targaryen II, although I don't guess he really gets a second name unless he actually becomes king, which is what a lot of this episode was about. I've already given my thoughts and ratings for this episode. I absolutely loved it. But we've got a panel full of people here who are going to tell you what they thought of the particular episode. Let's start with our Song of Ice and Fire, Siren from the East, Susan. Susan, welcome back to the podcast. How did you rate this episode on a scale of 1 to 10? And give me a brief reason why. Okay, Matt. Uh, I am going to rate it at 7.5. I'm giving it my lowest score of the three episodes I've seen so far. Um, primarily because... I'm not great. I'm not crazy about the battle scenes. And I just didn't think um, that a lot went on this episode. And I do believe from what I know about the story and what I've seen in upcoming episodes that there's going to be some great stuff coming up. So I think I'm going to enjoy these next few episodes a lot more than this one. All right. Well, that's a good enough opinion to have. What didn't you like about the battle? Just let me ask you. Uh, I'm, I'm not much of a battle person in general, and okay. actually, it's probably kind of a contrary opinion on my part, because when I look back at Game of Thrones, I absolutely love the Battle of the Bastards. I loved uh, Hard Home. I thought those were great episodes, but maybe more because there were already a lot of stakes built up for those characters and what was happening in the story at the time of those battles. Mm-hmm. And I just uh, I didn't feel it here. I mean, I loved the end with... Uh, Matt Damon, and that was definitely one of the highlights of the episode, but I just wasn't feeling it for the battle. All right, that's fair enough. How let's turn to our Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the North. That is Stephanie. What did yep. you rate this episode on a scale of one to ten? And give me a brief reason why. Um, one to ten, I'm gonna go with eight point five, just because I am not a battles person, I don't like it. I do have a weird thing where I like uh, Damon uh, Targaryen. He's crazy. Um, but uh, the worst was the crab man. And I thought he was the creepiest, skeeziest. I didn't even want to look at him. So mm. I was so glad when he came, when Damon came dragging out and dragging his half body. I was like, yes. But otherwise, I'm like, I'm not into battles or like animals getting like the pig and stuff. Mm. I don't want to see that. Um, but the, the scary crab man, like, yeah, that was good. <laughs> right on. So you're glad to see him gone. Yes. Yes. Okay. Looking back to my West. Now I'm going to turn to the song of ice and fire siren from there. That is Kelly. What can you tell me about your rating and why this the time around? I gave this an eight and a half. I went up from last week and I almost went full nine, but um, I figured I'll save some room. Maybe I, I really liked it. I liked the battle. I liked the Kingswood. 
I uh, really enjoyed the character development. I thought the progression and the way they cut between the beginning of the battle of the Stepstones to the end, um, I thought it worked um, to show the progression without showing progression. It just kind of uh, indicated that all of this has happened. I And um, I thought it, it was paced really well. And I really liked how quickly everything went. And I just, I had nothing but good vibes for the whole episode. Um, even the icky stuff. I was okay with I was like it had meaning for it and um there were some nitpicky things that kept it from being any higher but overall solid eight and a half all right and finally we turn back to the north one last time to the titan of a song of ice and fire from the north although currently he's in the northwest give me your rating on a scale of one to ten and why oh this is the toughest episode for me to rate so far because I've, I've watched it twice what uh, both in half asleep stupors, but I think I got a pretty good read on it just because I've been traveling like Littlefinger across the nation back and forth and like within like years. Exactly. I'm, I'm vacillating from like a 7.37 to an 8.8. So it, anywhere. It's quite a variance, John. You're going to have to narrow that I, down just a little bit. And I guess we'll just split the difference and go with a 7.8. The main reasoning being that you had such a variance? Or was it just because what were you the most invested in? What were you the least invested in? Why would you have such a variance? I'm like, I, I'm unusually, I, this episode, I'm kind of like with Susan. The battle stuff really kind of turned me off. I didn't think it was that great. And then, like, the, the political intrigue was great. There's also a lot of rush intros. And as we'll get into it, we'll probably talk about, like, the cold intros for some of the Valarians. I know we're like pressed for time and this is like a mega episode because it was over an hour, but this is like, we've had some of the stuff is rushed. Some of the stuff I think we're sitting on too much. So it's just, it felt uneven. Okay. Fair enough. Folks, you know, already, if you've listened to the initial reaction that what I rated it, I gave it a super high rating compared mm-hmm. to everybody else here. I gave it a 9.5. I thought the battle was magnificent. I thought the music for the battle was extraordinary, and that probably affected my rating as much as anything else. I also really did find some of the Kingswood stuff good. I hated the deer CGI. Um, that was a thing that would have taken any points away. Uh, it, otherwise, it might even have been a higher rating for me because I really got invested in Damon in the last part of this episode and totally rode that horse with him, loved it, every second of it. Speaking of that particular scene, oh my gosh, we John mentioned we have a mega episode. Well, you get a mega musical analysis, nearly 20 minutes. So if you don't like the musical analysis, <laughs> skip over that just about 20 minutes and you'll be on the other side where we'll address the wheel of topics. But here you go. Here's your musical analysis. Today in the musical analysis, we're really only going to be looking at one theme and one theme only, which was just part of a larger sequence of music that was amazing by Ramin this week. But I I want to focus on one particular part because the timbres, the harmonies, everything really struck me about this piece. It made it really unique in the world of Westeros as far as Ramin's writing goes. And it was extraordinarily emotional for me, but, you know, I'm different than most people when it comes to the music. I, I felt, uh, I probably felt it a little deeper than other people did. 
nonetheless, it was really important to me. And that's what we're going to talk about this time around. Before we do, though, I do want to mention that one of Ramin's other original pieces for this particular season uh, was used. Uh, that prince that was promised, which we heard on the piano at the end of the first episode, was actually used as Rhaenyra was mad at her dad and rode off on a horse. Uh, and Kristen Cole had to go after her. Um, the way that it was orchestrated was different than the way you would have heard it at the end of the first episode. It was done only with the strings, the melody part. And I thought it was really nice the way that it was incorporated in there. I'm not sure of its purpose for that, unless it's just meant to represent Rhaenyra and her thinking about, you know, whether she's going to inherit the throne or not. And that, of course, that's what she's mad about. That's the core issue. So perhaps that was what it was about. But I don't want to go any further on that one. I really want to dig into this music that started as Damon was reading Viserys's note. Man, this stuff was great from so many different perspectives. And it carried through him rowing the boat and up to the point where he surrendered. Once the, he started fighting, uh, it changed. So we won't go any further than up to the point where he started fighting. But there's so many things to think about in terms of this. First of all, the timbres. Um, Ramin has used synths before, but no synth with this kind of timbre, this kind of sound. And I'm actually not even sure how it was generated. I know that later in the piece, right before he starts fighting and everything, you actually hear some strings start to mix in with it that I feel like were produced with some kind of effects on them as well to make them sound kind of synthetic. And that kind of makes me question, perhaps all of it was performed by acoustic instruments and then processed using effects in order to create a synth-like sound. But whatever that sound was, which I liken to a lot of types of digital pads that you actually get, or even a mixture of digital and analog pads. Don't worry, that's, those are just sounds that have a slow swelling effect, is what I'm talking about when I say pads. But this particular sound and the incorporation of piano and voice together to state some of the melody in this was just extraordinary. And you know that I'm not a big piano guy, but the way it was used in this particular piece, I really, really dug. I dug the melodic shape of this. I dug the harmonies used. Everything about this piece was just fantastic. The first thing that I want to focus on really is the initial harmonies, because essentially all you get from this synth sound that really distinguishes itself from any other sound that we've had in Game of Thrones. Yes, Ramin has used synths before. In fact, the very first scene in Game of Thrones, those high bell-like tones that kind of, I don't know, I almost call them like sod bells kind of sounds. They were probably synth generated when we first heard the White Walker theme for the first time as those rangers were going out to investigate what was north of the wall but this regardless of whether you know it was synth or whether it was generated through processing effects or what have you and again i would have to have see some technical 
things in order to be able to truly tell you uh, what the source of the sound is. But it's a sound like we've never heard before. And it seems very appropriate that it would be applied to Damon as we're trying to figure out what he's thinking as he's reading Viserys's note. We find out very shortly that, of course, uh, he's not very pleased. He doesn't want Viserys's help. He needs to do this on his own. He feels personally defeated by the fact that Viserys is sending help, even though you could also look at it like, well, now you're going to send help after three years of us suffering losses. Could be that too. But anyway, the anger lashes out, but the harmony doesn't really change. And what's interesting about this particular harmony, they're just low chords but there are what we call clusters and suspensions in those chords. And what those do is they lack a sense of resolution. And we humans tend to really like resolution in our harmonies. We need them to resolve one way or the other. Instead, we get just suspended chords and they're kind of lower. And that also uh, gives you this deep feeling of a lack of resolution. It sounds like this on the piano, which will sound nothing like they did on those on that wonderful synth or whatever that timbre was, uh, but it sounds like this. Just beautiful. And it's just between the tonic the home sound and the dominant, which is the sound that tends to make you want to go back to the one. You can feel how those two chords uh, really easily complement each other. And that's because the five is always wanting to go back to the one. But the problem is, is that you don't have any sense of resolution. They are a suspended chord is consisted of the first note and the fifth note which doesn't define a harmony as either minor or major. And then the third note lies in between, but right next to the fifth, that's what we call the fourth note. That is the suspension. And until it either goes down to a major third or down to a minor third, we don't have any idea how to feel about it. So if it was going to seem like a happy thing, we might hear this resolution. If it was going to seem like a sadder or darker thing, then we might have the minor resolution like this. But we don't get either of them. We only get that suspended sound, which is just telling us, wait and see. And of course, that helps create tension. And we hear most of that as he's uh, going all the way through this sequence as he's rowing the boat, and then once he gets to the stepstones, that changes a little bit. But one of the things that was wonderful about this piece was the initial melody played in the piano that was played over it. And it was extraordinary because it almost sounded a little distorted because of the scales that it was derived from. It was actually derived from two scales. But first, just listen to the melody and see how it fits against the chords underneath it. And in some places you feel it really open up. In some places you feel it feel really tense. 
And that's because of the way that the scale that is being used over the harmony employed. But first, here it is on the piano, and then I'll explain it afterwards. So this melody is actually a kind of a concoction of a couple scales, but both of them are what I call half whole scales. And I'll explain that in just a second. But one part of the melody comes from this scale, while another part of the melody comes from this scale. Now here's the commonality of the two scales. As I said, they're both half whole, which means that after you play one note, then you merely go a half step, and the next note is based on a whole step from that. So if you were looking at a piano, you would have a white note, and then a black note, and then a white note, and then a black note, and then a white note, and then a white note. Well, in the first step, you skip from a white note up to a black note, but then in the second step, you skip over to the next black note you skip over that middle white note and what happens there is that creates a symmetry you end up with eight notes in the scale whereas normally after every seven notes in any other kind of normal scale it starts to repeat you get back to the same note that you were at before now something i've said often in terms of how our human brains interpret especially harmony and the way that melody is applied to those harmonies is the fact that we do not like symmetry in our harmony or in our melodies that outline a harmony, which is what this melody does in some ways. When we get symmetry in our harmony, for some reason, our brains go, oh, that's not right. In this case, each of these scales use eight notes out of a possible 12. That symmetry of being dividable by four triggers something in our brains to tell us that it sounds either exotic or that it sounds unnatural. This kind of thing is very definitely an influence on increasing our tension. What is Damon going to do? Where is he going with this? Okay, so Lenor said something about feigning a surrender and here Damon is is he doing it because of the message from Viserys what is he doing here is he doing it just despite Viserys is it part of the plan there's a lot of question marks going on as he comes to that hill and starts to surrender and that whole process leading up to it so that's what that psychologically that kind of scales do to us now another thing that happens here is that then the melody itself develops. As we get to that point, you'll notice that some of the prior melody is being voiced by these chords that make it feel really big. What those chords are are what we call tenth chords, meaning that they have a note in them that doesn't really fit the triad, so to speak, the three notes that we typically think of that make a harmony, but they add an extra color to it. It gives it a sense of expansion. 
And those chords uh, really help set up this next part as well, because what happens then is we start to shift to another key. It's really the same key. It's just that it's shifting its focus to another part of that particular key. Again, these terms you don't really need to understand. But again, you have this same kind of half-whole kind of scale being used by Ramin, even as the, the harmony and the shape starts to climb. You also have the additional timbres of the voice coupled with the piano. It's just extraordinary. The sound is just so wonderful. And uh, we've heard that kind of voice sound used before in Game of Thrones, but not in combination with a piano playing the same notes. And I thought that it was just extraordinary. Now, this developmental section, well, it's not really a developmental section. It's just another second part of the melody itself. What it does is it makes everything seem different, bigger more complex because it's the first time that we get a true establishment of a major chord within the melody itself. Up until now, everything's been kind of ambiguous, but we get a major chord, which tends to feel hopeful once we get to a certain point in this section of the melody. So let's play that on the piano. That last part of the melody is what really makes everything feel bigger uh, and even more emotional because for the first time we've got some kind of resolution. We needed that in our hearts, even though you may not interpret what that means visually. Uh, your heart can only take so much before it starts breaking. And this one, uh, he did release the tension a little bit, but then he adds it right back again as the melody continues. Now I'm going to pick up where I did from that last chord because that last chord is the major chord. And I'm going to continue through the rest of the main melody part. And this is extraordinary as well because it develops even further to establish a totally different center of harmony that is yet related to the original harmony. Uh, and it's strange. He just kind of brings it back to the original harmony all of a sudden. I'll get to that in a second. But first, listen to this developmental part where the bass actually starts to climb by a half step and then defines a whole new chord where the melody is on top. And it, it creates this feeling of what? What's going on? And that's what this is about. So here it is. Now, in a weird way, that last chord that you heard that seems like it just comes out of nowhere is related to both the chord that we started with in that section of the melody and the way that it resolves to the original chords, it's just very convoluted in the way that it works. The bottom line is, is that because he chooses this chord, he can then resolve to wherever he wants. 
he can go back home to the original harmony, which is what he does. But he implies a little bit of a difference in the fact that in the second time he plays the chord that is home, he actually resolves it. Well, okay, he sort of resolves it because he keeps the suspension in there and then plays the resolution of a major third against it. So, again, it's a lighter sound, yet because of the tension between the suspension and the major third, those notes are right next to each other. It doesn't really resolve what's going to happen for us, which is great. It, it makes us feel a little bit of hope without taking away some of the worry. And again, it's established like this on the piano. So lots of complexities, lots of terms that you'll never use, that you never really need to know, but it's the only way I can put it into context in order to help you understand how narratively it tells a story. All of these chords are used to give emotional context to any kind of melody, to anything that you're seeing on screen. That's why harmony is so important. Again, the melody this time around really helps to give everything a very tense feeling. Now, here's something interesting. I don't know if this theme is going to be used ever again. I, I mean, until I have more evidence, I won't know. Neither will you. Neither will anyone else out on the internet unless they have access to all of Ramin's recordings. So why call this a theme just about the surrender when it could possibly be a theme about Damon himself. Up to that point, it's a possibility. The only way that we will know is if that melodic structure or the harmonies are used again with Damon, a scene with Damon. That will tell us narratively whether this is a character theme or whether it was just a theme for the moment. And I've done a lot of rambling. It's time to get back to our panelists, so let's do that. Thanks for listening to this part. I know that uh, if you've been here, then I've probably, uh, you know, either confused you or bored you. Uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Back to our panelists now with the Wheel of Topics. It is a tiny wheel as usual. It's the tiniest wheel to date. And I cannot see a single bit of wording on it. I know there's several of them. How about, Stephanie, you take a look at those wheel of topics and tell me what that wheel landed on. Whether you're Dame on or Dame off, he's a total badass. So let's hear some thoughts from you guys, because I've already rattled on and off about that uh, for nearly 40 minutes in the initial reaction podcast. Stephanie, why don't we just start with you? You said uh, earlier that uh, some of the Damon stuff, you were really kind of Dame on these days. I'm so still definitely Dame on. Uh, he is awesome. He's uh, Targaryen cute, if that's a word. Um, he is a great actor. And he is clearly the most badass swordsman all in Westeros. Uh, he killed the ugly crab king 
uh, he's a winner in my book. I love him. <laughs> but I also love Matt Smith. So I think that is influencing it. But I love him. <laughs> I recall when Matt Smith was originally cast, that there was quite a bit, at least on Twitter, which, you know, how can you gauge it really when you're looking at it on Twitter? But there was an awful lot of fan hate for that casting. And I have to admit that when I saw the first poster uh, and he had the legalist hair, I was kind of like, eh, I'm not sure, but I've seen this guy act in, especially like in the crown as I'm, I'm sure that you have too, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that convinced me, convinced me that acting wise, he could probably do just about any role. Damon uh, was brought it today. I was happy. Uh, he had a wide range of, of character reactions, I thought, and I really enjoyed watching him. Um, I had no idea how he was going to react when he read that letter. Um, I, we had a vague idea of what it said, but his reaction made me question what it said. So I like that they gave us a voiceover after and I was like, wow, that his reaction could have gone either way. And the whole time after he was reading it, I was like, I could not read his reaction. And then even after that, I was still trying to figure out like why he reacted that way. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on what you read into his uh his dramatics and how uh, Viserys triggered that in him um, or not. But yeah. what did you guys think? The music told me that it was supposed to be ambiguous because it was using suspended chords, but that's, you know, that's easy for me to do that kind of interpretation. Susan, how about you? Yeah. Well, I'm still definitely uh Damon. Um, I agree. I think that Matt Smith is doing fantastic with this role and uh, he's definitely fulfilling all of the promise of what we know about that character from the books. I found it, it, it's interesting. This is one of the scenes that when they were uh, doing some of the initial kind of like spy analysis of the filming that was going on for the television show, this is one of the scenes that people had picked up on. And so the fact that he had, that he was beating up this other character uh, was something that got out there. And a lot of people were speculating that that might have been because he was getting news that Viserys had had a son, which obviously that's not the case. Didn't turn out to be the case. My impression was that he was there specifically to try to earn glory in war. And when he got this message from his brother that his brother was going to kind of come there and try and clean things up and save the situation that he couldn't allow that to happen. And that just really upset him that that was going to be potentially taken away from him. I totally agree with that. Also, uh, I pondered in the initial reaction podcast, it's like, just think of it from Damon's perspective. It's like, okay, I did all of these things and now you're going to try and take credit for everything that I've been working on. Not only that, but you let me suffer for three years before you decide to send help. Uh, to right. me, I, I think there was a lot of rage, just like with Rhaenyra and the boar. I think there was a lot of rage for Viserys pouring out uh, of Damon in one fell swoop at that moment. John, what did you think? Yeah, Damon definitely still with him. Love the character, but that doesn't mean I agree with everything the character does. <laughs> However, I do understand where he's coming from. The uh, the, the last minute help definitely not helping things. But the one thing that I was like a finger wagging at him like the whole time was, dude, you come out with a peace, a sign of peace, like a white flag, and then you're just going to go crazy ape on these guys, which I mean, I'm cool with like you doing the sword thing, but don't come out under a sign of peace. Like that's just, that's so 
cowardly. Like the signs of like the the comparisons of Jamie. Jamie would would not do that. Oh, John, they were prepared. They had like fifty archers up there. All they had to of do was let loose at any time. Yeah, yeah, but they but they respected that flag. That's what. <laughs> Can I comment on that? Sure, Susan, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that uh, that was a really good example of what we know about this character from the books. He's both will do horrible things and do uh, really heroic or, you know, have be wonderful in battle. So I think that was the, you know, showing both sides of him that that it obviously was a um, a terrible thing to bring out that white banner and then to to go ahead and uh, uh do what he did afterwards, but um, that's Damon Targaryen. Well, and it's one guy against 500. I mean, yes, he was luring him into a trap, but I don't think that they knew that at the time. I mean, white flag or no, they could have, they could have theoretically, they thought they could have taken him out at any time. So the premise sure. of how he did it doesn't really matter to me that much, but I know you guys are, you guys are right. In the in a respectful fantasy world, you don't do that. I totally get it. And and Susan, absolutely, that is a, a characteristic that seems very like the the book Damon uh, that we've read about in past stories. So I agree with that totally. I'm just like I'm so good with it. Kelly's got a thought. I know she does. What she got? Well, I was just thinking it, it, they even um, established this earlier with Damon in the tourney list, wherein he uh, dipped his his lance and and. Uh, went played dirty against the the high tower uh son so he's it has been established that he just kind of you know gets away with it <laughs> so let's spin the wheel of topics one more time it's a tiny wheel hopefully it doesn't fall off i can't see that at all kelly where did it land it's so coincidental that it landed right after we were talking about demon that it landed on dragon counts so we're going to talk about the dragons and how it just so naturally led in from uh, Damon. Wow. The seven gods are guiding us tonight. Kelly, did you like the appearance of a third dragon and a third dragon rider? I did. That, and I'm really glad you, you mentioned that. Um, I liked going through uh, TV only Reddit and seeing how people interpreted the show. And one, people did not understand that there was a third dragon there. Everyone thought that that was just uh, sea smoke the whole time. Um, if we all agree that that sea smokes will be uh, the Lenore dragon. Um, and yeah, that, that there was another dragon there. Um, I think the confusion also was kind of impounded by the fact that uh, Rainey's wasn't um, credited this episode. So there's some rules about like whether the actor has a speaking line or appears prominently. They don't get they then they have to get a credit. But if they're not and if it's I'm assuming that was CGI Dragon Rider on top of the third dragon. <laughs> who who was the third dragon rider then? It was Lanor, right? I thought that was Lanor riding. There were two dragons in that scene. Really? I didn't. Mm -hmm. I only saw one. Yeah, me too. Thank you. I believe that there were two dragons in that scene, but I don't know. Mm. I could be wrong. I thought that the, the second rider, I thought there was a second dragon with the second rider um, that was taking out the arrows on the uh, on the ledge. And I thought I thought that was Melee's and Reina and Rainey's. Okay. Mm. My only thought was because it looked like Danny's dragons as opposed to like Caraxes and Cyrax and Sea Smoke all have the more wyvern shape, whereas Danny's dragons, if you look at their haunches, their legs, they're a little bit more dinosaur-y. 
and mm. what it looks like to me, they don't have as tight of webbing, I guess, between the legs. I don't know what to call that it's a space there, <laughs> like a frog. I will have to go back and rewatch it. I only saw sea smoke in that scene, so I'm really not sure. In fact, I was pretty sure when um, the dragon was taking out the um, the archers up on the the cliff that that was sea that was definitely sea smoke in my interpretation. But I'll have to go back and look. Okay. I could be wrong. It's a new dragon shape, and, and we're seeing them from all kinds of angles and stuff now. So um, I could be wrong. Well, it could, it could be any number of possibilities. One thing that we do know is that Rainey's does, in fact, have a dragon. I couldn't remember if its name was Maylie's or Sunfire or whatever its name was. And we have heard mention of Vagar. So I guess technically our dragon count could be as much as five now. Um, but yeah, well, look at John's face blowing up there. His head it just exploded. Five dragons out of how many more will we get? Who knows? But uh, well, some of us do know, uh, possibly, but well, she said in the intro, I did go back and rewatch. I had a free day yesterday. So I went back and rewatched the first episode. And in the um, voiceover, she says that the house Targaryen has 10 full grown dragons, 10 full grown dragons. But that doesn't include baby dragons. Does that include wild dragons? Uh, so still a possibility of the numbers exploding one way or the other. Uh, John, do you have any thoughts additional thoughts about uh Lenor. i was excited to see a valarian riding a dragon because we've already been told that uh by some behind the scenes stuff and everything that valarians were not dragon lords in the days of old maybe even in the show we've heard that but uh Lenor, i suppose having some targaryen blood in him from his mother uh is perfectly capable of being a dragon rider absolutely no the what I mean, thanks a lot, Kelly. Now you gave me another reason to rewatch the episode again, but I'm not, I'm not going to complain too much. Watch the um, meter go there, there, there. Hey, there yeah, it's just going to keep going up and down. It's like your metronome when you're playing your music. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the metronome stays the same. It's just my playing around it that varies <laughs> terribly. <laughs> what signature are we on this episode, Matt? Yeah, we're in seven eight. Uh, not quite there. Excellent. Yeah, not quite whole. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I like the dragons. My only issue, and it may come up on the wheel of topics later, but the uh, kind of like, surprise, here's a new dragon. If you bring in a new dragon, you got you to gotta name the dragon. You got to know the rider, because otherwise you're going to have this confusion of exactly what we're going through right now. I get they're trying, they at least conclude the scene. They need to conclude by like naming the dragon and the rider and who it was. I mean, it just, you have to connect the dots for the for the tigre. Us, we don't need that. Like mm. we can we can Google. Oh. HBO having a history of showrunners who like to make people discuss things without giving them answers. Where have we heard that before? I can't even imagine. Well, well um, I, I guess HBO. Can you do some of the legwork here for for people that I I personally know because they often will on me to help answer these questions i guess i'll just forward them <laughs> kelly's uh number they call kelly kelly will happily tell you and she will give you way more information than you necessarily need <laughs> nay i say want but no i i i love the dragons anytime i'm a big animal person as everybody who listens to the show knows so any more dragons i'm all about it i'm very intrigued to rewatch now if there's another dragon 
Kelly, if you let me down with this speculation or observation, we, I will have words, but oh, no. <laughs> it'll mostly hey, be if like, it's wow. a If it's accompanied by seven spreadsheets, how can you argue it? I mean, I can't. I, <laughs> you can't argue anything Kelly says because she's always got evidence to back herself up. I want screenshots, Kelly. I want. Have you scrolled down in the doc yet, by the way? Susan, I can't possibly read that. I don't understand what's going on there. Can you can you read for me what's on the wheel of topics that, where it landed? Boar blood. Rhaenyra lashes out. Wow, that's a lot of words on that board, on that little space on the tiny wheel. But okay, yeah. so let's talk about this with the with the king's uh, the king's hunt. I guess is what, or it's in the king's wood, but it's the royal hunt. Right. And Rhaenyra is not having any part of what's going on with the dad because she feels like she's getting sold off, which I think from the perspective that she was at, it was probably understandable, although uh, it all felt like it was just kind of a big setup for a nice scene at the end in the council room where Damon could say, no, you're still my ear. Uh, but nonetheless, how did you feel about the way that Rhaenyra was lashing out against that boar? And believe me, the boar was dangerous. It needed to die uh, because it was going to be them or, or it. But the way that she did it and all the blood flying up and getting in her hair and getting all over her face, that was a very visceral vi uh, visual for me. And I found some symbolicness in it as well. in the fact that this girl just don't take crap. How did you feel about it? Yeah, um, well, you know, Think back to the very beginning of the episode when they were in that little uh, uh, carriage or whatever it was going out to the to the hunt. And her father was talking to her about wanting her to ride out with him. And she said she really didn't want to. She didn't want to be around boars because they when they died, it reminded her of squealing children. You wonder, you know, she was being so aggressive with that boar and she's got a reason to be upset about a squealing child right now. So maybe she was taking out a little bit of her frustration there. Um, I do want to say, though, that I had seen a bit of this scene in one of the trailers before and I was really worried about it. I was hoping that they weren't going to show uh, Rhaenyra really aggressively killing a person. I didn't know what was going on with all this blood that was flying up on her uh, during the, the little bit that they saw. So I was actually glad that it wasn't a person. <laughs> it was it was the boar. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's it's an us or them situation. So uh, it just didn't maybe didn't quite have to be that violent. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, if I was in the same situation, I would have gone after it really hard and then run away and never been seen <laughs> yeah. from again and, you know right. another boar would have got me before i would have gotten home but that's <laughs> me I'm, I'm a coward that way john what did you feel about this i like this for the character not not the boar the poor boar but hopefully it made for some good um as the behind the scenes guy said some pulled pork sandwiches but again if you've read the the, the history books fire and blood you, you you don't you don't get all the nitty-gritty details that are going on so this is kind of cool because you get some uh, kind of early reveals of some things possibly to come, question mark. I don't know, but I do like to see her, like she's showing that she's kind of raw. Like this is a raw moment for her. Um, and I personally like the lead up to this because when she's in the godswood and she's, she's straight up passive aggressive towards her 
quote unquote best friend slash new mom slash stepmom. And so she's going to this thing and she's like hating life. She's got to celebrate her little uh, little half brother's uh, birthday. And then this board comes in, interrupts her like fireside chat with Kristen Cole and she's not having it. And she straight up takes care of that board. So, I mean, I don't know if I would have been able to do that, but I get it. So it's just a great character reveal moment overall. I agree with that. Also, a great CGI boar, the best CGI animal of the bunch, uh, aside from a couple of the dragons. I thought the dragons looked all right this this episode, too. Uh, But uh, the the bronze medalist for CGI creature goes to the boar this time around. Was it a CGI boar or was it a taxidermy boar or like a... I could see a co- like a composite, like where they take a real boar, have it run into the screen, and then they give her like a stuffed animal, and it just kind of like stands in for one. Well, I think the one that knocked Kristen Cole over pretty much had to be a CGI boar. Um, okay. No, nonetheless, uh, regardless of whatever else you do with it, I don't think that you can get around that one. Uh, there was just too much interaction there for me, uh, what I saw on my screen. But that's, you know, that's just me. I'm the most nitpicky CGI guy, and then I'll... I'll praise something that doesn't deserve praise. Um, speaking of like that, Kelly often praises me when I don't deserve it too. And so your thoughts about this particular scene, Kelly? I loved your take on the uh, initial reaction. I thought that that was great. <laughs> that was not even on cue. I just, I was literally planning on saying that. Um, when you were pointing out that this was more of a concerning indication for her um, potential, um, her capacity for violence and her, um, where she takes her frustrations out on the intended, uh, target or a stand-in for that frustration. Um, both of those are of concern for her, her character growth and development and where, where they're trying to show us she is going. Um, also in comparison to Alicent, I thought this was, you know, I could never see Alicent doing that. You know what I mean? So I think that the, distinguishing her from other girls her age um in in her similar roles in royalty you know this was a very distinct reaction that she had making her kind of stand out even more so let's spin the wheel of topics sarah sings a lennon song you know i'm a dreamer you know imagine i'm a dreamer that's a lot of words to put on that little wheel. I'm telling you, I don't know where, how, who got that, whoever got all that lettering on there is pretty darn good. But it's yeah, the I, internet, Matt. We make the wheels as big as we want. Oh well, not on my screen. Uh, my screen, the the wheel is very tiny. I can't see it very often. That's why I have to have other people who are closer to it read it to me. Okay, so Viserys goes through this whole thing, and again, I want to say this right off the bat. I read this is nothing more than kind of a plot-wise a red herring to make us think, oh, he's going to change to Aegon. You know, he's going to change the air uh, just so that we could have the nice conversation at the end. It's another one of those little plot device pieces, but it still has, given what we've heard in this particular uh, season of House of the Dragon, the importance of dreams to Targaryens, what kind of significance do we place in the fact that it seems like when he had this dream with clarity was when Aegon was, well, I was long before Alicent. It was when he was still married to, to Emma, or at least that's the way I interpreted it. 
And now he's saying that, well, maybe this dream was actually about this time. Um, to me, this just proves kind of his ineptness on a lot of fronts. Uh, because if he is a dreamer, then why isn't he able to interpret his own dreams? And mm. these are the these are the kinds of ineptness things uh, on top of uh, a, a very obvious scene in this uh, during this hunt as well. But uh, Susan, let me go to you first, and then we'll go to Kelly, and then to John. Well, I thought that one of the reasons that this scene was significant was because he was sharing his doubt with Allison. So she could be getting the idea in her head that he isn't so sure about the succession and how that might influence her ideas about it because she might think that he has questions and concerns about whether Rainier is the right choice. Very good point. That's an excellent point. Anything else about that before we move to Kelly? No. That's nope. it. <laughs> <laughs> I like succinct answers. That's wonderful. Kelly, uh, give me a succinct answer. Uh, I liked that it um, showed how his indecisiveness uh, can cause him to make really bad decisions. Um, I think his fingers were an indication of that this episode as well. Um, and his decis- indecisiveness um, in whether to treat the finger or to take it off led to him losing two fingers. Uh, his in- inability to stick to his uh, his uh, vision and to believe in himself and just to go all in on it led him to make Rhaenyra the his heir. And then now he's uh, doubting that. And now he has to stick with one or the other. And he's he's just in- indicated to me he's got insecurities. And uh, it's never easy to uh, live up to the prophecy that you think that you're trying to um, bring to life, I guess. Um, the yeah. life of a prophet probably isn't as easy when it's your first prophecy. <laughs> right. Well, and not only that, but uh, it also just makes him seem that much more tragic to me. I, I'm really invested in this character as as a tragic character, which I believe is what Patty Constantine had said uh, in a lot of press interviews that that was kind of the angle he was trying to take as opposed to the kind of blatantly jerkish and you can call some a lot of the things that Viserys has done in this series uh, jerkish, but the 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 kind of the blatant jerk that you find in the books, I, I'm I'm enjoying investing in this character as as more of kind of a tragic character. I've spoken enough, John. What about you? So interesting that you mentioned the book version of Viserys because um, as, as I revealed earlier, I finally caught up. I'm well past where the show is. Um, and I'll, I'll jump back to the scene, but the version of Asteris that I got from reading the book is not necessarily a jerk. He's kind of slightly aloof, really fun-loving guy who doesn't probably take him being king as seriously as he should, but he's also super indecisive. That That's kind of like some of the uh, higher impressions I got. So... I prefer, honestly, the way Patty Constantine's interpreting Viserys, personally. Um, but taking the book thing into account in the dream, which I don't remember having just recently read it, was not even even a thing in the book. I kind of jumped out of my seat in my head. I didn't literally do it. I went, aha! And I, I got really, really excited based on his quote-unquote prophecy. So... I'll leave it at that. You guys can mildly speculate on that at home. I don't want to ruin the, the ruin everything for you. However, 
I really like this scene from a storytelling perspective. And I'm just, oh, uh, and uh, just, I, I, I love the way they're revealing the prophecies. And for me, this, this shows how much Ryan Condal is a fan. Like he gets how to sprinkle this stuff in. That's for me, at least I, that's how I'm seeing it. Exactly. He just needs to stop writing scenes for symbolism that use CGI animals. As long as he learns to stop <laughs> writing those scenes, then I think he's going to be pretty darn good. We could talk about CGI animals, but I don't disagree with you. However, I can tell you, I'm not on my optimal viewing uh, platform um, as I am uh, traveling about the country like Littlefinger. So um, I can tell you, if you are not as attuned to your viewing platform, CGI doesn't look that bad at all for the first set animal. Yeah, neither does an episode of Merlin on the BBC, but. <laughs> Dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series. Well, first, I think it's funny that you're talking about how women centric this episode is. And the HBO Game of Thrones franchises. And yay, women, but then you insisted on going first, but uh, it's cool. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Before the Dragon. Don't tell me what to do, 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 do. Folks, we like to do every week a scene from a movie. We kind of twist it up in a Westerosi way. We don't like to uh, make it too obvious what that scene is, but we are doing a contest in which you can win something of your choice from the Warner Brothers store that is official House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones merchandise, depending on uh, whatever your preference is. Um, it's on me. What you have to do is we're going to play five scenes. We're on to scene three this week, uh, but the other two scenes have been in prior podcasts. Go find them. Go listen to them. If you can tell me the actual movie that each of these scenes are from, and you can either wait until the end of the five scenes and send them all on one list, or you can send them to me weekly, as Jenny has been doing. I really appreciate Jenny uh, submitting hers. Uh, I also appreciate a, a couple of others that we've gotten as well. But I want to say that it seems like after seeing some of these submissions that everybody is having trouble with scene one. Scene one is difficult because first of all, me and Stephanie were doing Cersei and Tyrion. She was doing Cersei. I was doing Tyrion poorly. I might add, but the scene is actually between two guys, not a woman and a guy. So don't let that mislead you for one. The second thing is that the object that might get crushed by a dwarf is named as a Marinese pyramid. But if you listen closely in the background, an audience is chanting what the actual object from the actual movie was. I try to lay in these little audio clues uh, just to out-clever myself, and usually they don't work. But uh, there's your clue. Whatever the people are chanting in the background is the actual object that our Cersei was worried would get crushed in the actual movie. So use that to determine what that actual movie was. Again, it was a famous cult comedy classic. The second one from last week was a famous court scene from a movie by a famous playwright who actually wrote it as a play first and then it was made into a movie. The third one this week, uh, oh boy. There's an audio clue in this one. I'll just say that it should be pretty hard to miss. This should be the easiest scene of the five, but it's me and John doing a famous father son scene from a movie 
that everybody knows. That's your clue. Here's the scene. Scenes from a Westerosi movie. There's no escape. Don't make me destroy you, John. You've not realized your importance. You've only begun to discover your power. Join me, and I will complete your training. With our combined strength, we can end this destructive The Bells episode and bring order to Season 8. I'll never join you! If you only knew the power of the Dawn side. Ned Stark never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me he slept with John Connington. There's your scene from a Westerosi movie for this week. That was scene three. Remember, there's two weeks prior of scenes. You need to collect all of those scenes, and the person with the most correct guesses, or if multiple people have the same number of correct guesses, and that's the most, will do a drawing amongst those top contestants. When something on me from the Warner Brothers store, official either House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones merchandise. Now, you say, well, yeah, send them to you. And I can send them to you either all at once, or I can send them to you one at a time. But how do I do that, and when do I need to get them in? You need to get them in by October 10th. We'll have gone through all five scenes by then. You need to get all of your real, actual movie guesses that these twisted scenes are from and send them to me by October 10th. How do you send them? Well, you tweet to at the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod on Twitter. If you'd rather not have your guesses be made public so that somebody else can steal them, follow me, send me a tweet saying you need to send it to me via DM. If I'm not following you, I will follow you back so that you can send your guesses to me in the form of a DM. You can also send them via email. That's perfectly private. I'm the only one who's going to see that. Send those emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audio blog, all strung together, at gmail.com. If you really don't care whether other people see your guesses or not, you can submit them via the website or via YouTube. There is a contact form at the website that would be private, but you can also leave the comments in the posts at the website. The website is just like the email, mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S-A-U-D-I-O-B-L-O-G.com. And finally, if you still don't care whether people see it in public, you can also leave your guesses on a YouTube comment in our videos. We would love it if you would search for the word before the Dragon Podcast on YouTube, subscribe, like some of our videos, and leave comments. We're always open to your feedback, your three words, your brothel mates, your feedback. Even if you don't get it in by our deadline of Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific time in order to make the Thursday podcast, We'll just hold over what you sent until the next week 
and put it in there. Sometimes I even put them in the initial reactions. But once again, tweet at the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod. Send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. Comment on the website, mattsaudioblog.com, or comment on the YouTube videos, youtube.com. I want you to win something from me. I can't give you anything if you don't take guesses, but that's up to you. That's going to conclude part one of this podcast, which is in two parts. We'll be back in just a few hours with part two. Please come back and join us. We still have a lot to discuss. We still have to go through three words. We still have to go through brothel mates. We still have to go through feedback. We still have to go through seven hells where today we decided that we will draw two names each week to double the peril for us. And hopefully somebody will get punished so that you get a payoff for this because otherwise we're just drawing numbers for nothing. See ya.